Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, joined as always by my co-host, Andre Ganoella. And this is episode two of our collaboration with the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center, where we are featuring their 100 ideas for the first 100 days of the Biden administration project. And in this episode, we highlight contributions by Dr. Harlan Ullman, Evan Cooper, and Marcus Garlowskis. Now, Dr. Ullman discusses America's alliances, Evan advocates for reshaping the State Department, and Marcus outlines a North Korea strategy. Dr. Harlan Ullman is a senior advisor at the Atlantic Council and currently spends his time straddling the worlds of business and public policy. Dr. Ullman has had a long career in foreign policy. He has actively advised American secretaries of state and defense and has been a key advisor to to NATO strategic commanders and secretaries general. And he has also been on the senior advisory board of the Supreme Allied Commander Europe for almost 13 years. He has also consulted with members of Congress and has met with the heads of many foreign governments in Europe and the Indo-Pacific regions. He is seen as a global thought leader in strategic and innovative thinking, both in the public and private sectors, and has argued repeatedly for a brains-based approach for critical thinking and quote-unquote porcupine defense. Dr. Ullman in this podcast will now discuss his idea for how the United States needs to upgrade its alliances. The most important issue I contributed, which will lead to the one we're going to discuss about alliances, has to do with the fact that we've now entered a brand new strategic paradigm. For much of certain modern history, uh, superpowers, uh, state actors and non-state actors dominated in what was called the Westphalian world. But now there is a new actor on stage, and I write a book about this, which comes out this summer, called The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, the tragic history of how massive attacks of disruption are endangering, infecting, engulfing, and disunited a 51% nation and the rest of the world. And to give you stark evidence of this, the pandemic is an example of an act probably of nature, which has been unbelievably disruptive. We haven't been able to respond fully to that. If that weren't enough, you have solar winds and the hacking of some 18,000 different government websites and the Texas storm, which took out power in one of the wealthiest energy rich places in the world is a third if we need any more warning. And so the question is, how do we be able to graph on to the state and non-state list of threats this new, I think, even greater danger of massive attacks of disruption? And I have seven <clears throat> major ones that go beyond the pandemic. Failed and failing government is, as we see in the United States, one of the most important problems we face. Climate change is existential. Um, cyber, social media, which are connected. Terror, which is not certainly <laughs> lessened and has really expanded within our own borders, debt and drones. And by the mean I've used of drones, drones are not fully regulated. Supposing the January 6th insurrectionists were equipped with 50 or 100 drones and each with a tiny little bomb, what the damage could be. This is being done in large parts of the world where there's violence. And so, how do we deal with this issue of massive attacks of disruption? And my argument is that. There has to be global solutions. We're not going to be able to deal with climate change without the participation of China, India, and virtually every state in the world that that pollutes. Um, We need to revise NATO, which is going to be increasingly difficult. 
because here's the stress. In the past, and I've been on the NATO advisory board for Supreme Allied Commander for about 12 or 13 years. I left a couple of years ago. We've always tried to expand NATO into energy security, uh, into cyber, and now China. That's not going to work. And the reason it's not going to work is that the majority of NATO members who belong to the EU and Great Britain have already signed a a free trade agreement with China. And so now you have the clash of economic interest in Europe with geostrategic interest in Asia. And I can guarantee you which is going to work more. So what we need to do with NATO, and indeed in the, in the Pacific, in terms of alliances, is to develop new strategies vis-a-vis Russia and China. Now, I go into great detail vis-a-vis Russia, how NATO should be uh, deploying what I call a porcupine strategy. And the idea of a porcupine very strategy very much is this. You don't want to pet a porcupine. That will not be a good experience. And so by using new technologies, literally thousands of drones, missiles, uh, countermeasures, deception, decoys, you can make a potential Russian attack. And the Russians are not going to occupy the Balts. I mean, that's just a false. That's a myth. They had an experience in World War II. They're not going to repeat it. But by raising the level of pain that you can cause, you can be able to make sure that the Russians have no intention of moving west. And by the way, you fill in the one area, and this is where I would really want to expand NATO, in the so-called non-kinetic gray areas, uh, where Russia and China are literally eating our lunch in terms of interference in politics, in terms of economics, in terms of propaganda, in terms of hacking. In Asia, I call for a maritime, mobile maritime line of defense, which basically would keep China to the first island chain. And we have to develop allies and provide systems to do that. And the systems would be very similar to the ones in Europe. In other words, you would use lots of drones, lots of unmanned vehicles, lots of missiles, mines, electronic warfare where the Chinese are ahead of us, deception. And you would rely on, on, on potential allies Uh, providing them some of the equipment and some sort of deals. Vietnam is an example, Taiwan is an example, Japan and South Korea, and the Philippines. And you can do this on a bilateral basis, a de facto basis. And I think you need to use the uh, caution of Teddy Roosevelt, speak softly but carry a big stick. We're far better off doing things, if not entirely covertly, uh, with some degree of sophistication, so that the Chinese will really pay attention. We can talk all about the Pacific Deterrence Fund and spend $5 billion on that. It ain't going anywhere unless we use allies. We have global problems today far greater than we ever had in the past. We were able to establish NATO that was dealing with a specific threat. Well, the threat is now global. It extends beyond nation states. It extends beyond non-state actors. And it really applies to massive attacks of disruption. And if we're going to deal with this, we're going to have to deal with it through a new series of of alliances and different organizations. For example, we need to have an organization to deal with pandemics beyond the World Health Organization. You know, the notion is if you don't vaccinate everybody, what's, what's what's the point? Well, we're not going to be able to vaccinate everybody, but there are going to be new strains. And we also have to have some kind of an international organization that builds on the World Bank, the IMF because development is important. Without development, uh, people are always going to be seen as desperate, and desperation leads to terror and violence. And so I think we need to have a brand new worldview in which it may be to our advantage that we are no longer the colossal superpower, 
Now we've got to use our brains. We can't spend our way out of, out of danger and we have to rely on other cooperative people. I think under those circumstances, uh, we have terrific opportunities. But the problem goes back to my first major disruptor, failed and failing government. I mean, look at what's happening in Capitol Hill. Uh, and it's not likely to get better when you have a 50-50 Senate and you have this ridiculous filibuster rule, which means you need 60 votes. So nothing's going to be done. And beyond the $1.9 trillion uh, America relief package, what are we doing about infrastructure? We still are a country with a 20th century infrastructure in the 21st century. Where are we going to get the money to deal with that? And I come up with some solutions in which I call for a national investment fund, which is a new form of alliance between the private and public sectors in which government puts up some money. The private sector puts up some money in 30-year bonds with 2 or 3% above prime interest rates. And they are, they are paid over time with user fees, tolls, and return on investment. Remember the TARP Troubled Asset Relief Program of some $800 billion made 30 or 40 or $50 billion for the U.S. government. There's no reason we can't, uh, we cannot duplicate that. But the issue is we need to break the mold. We need to look at things differently. We need to understand it's a more complicated world, world that depends on people, not just allies. And we have to revise what we're doing in terms of this new strategic paradigm, which is very much in our advantage because it will give us an area to compete. We could be so far ahead, for example, in climate change, in new energy, in artificial intelligence, all these things which have terrific opportunities for employment and growth. Yet, I'm afraid we're not poised to do that. And under the current circumstances, we're going to find ourselves spending lots of money to deal with a Russian and Chinese threat that's largely military when the threats are no longer entirely military. Dr. Ullman then discusses whether he believes that the United States is in a bipolar or multipolar world, a bipolar world implying that the U.S. and China are the two primary powers in the world, or a multipolar world that would include the U.S., China, and Russia. Many analysts now believe that the United States is entering great power competition as more powers like Russia, China, and others grow in significance. Well, I would reject both of those. I think we're entering a more complicated world that is more than just multipolar, and it certainly is not bipolar, except if you use that in the psychi psychiatric sense, which may be very applicable, uh, rather than a geopolitical sense. Um, the problem, and you ask about conflict, the problem is that the one thing, or the reality is that the one thing that, uh, that both Republicans and, and Democrats on the Hill agree on is that China is a threat, but they don't agree what that threat is whether it's violation of human rights, whether it's economic warfare, whether it's militarization, uh, whether it's uh, providing insufficient evidence about, uh, about COVID. And unfortunately, the great power competition, which currently is the base model for our strategy, is fundamentally flawed for several reasons. One, there's no off-ramp. And if you just think back to 1914, that didn't work out well when there was another great series of great power rivalries. And so I want to know what the off-ramp is. And we have set as our, our national defense strategy out to, um, to deter, and if war comes, defeat, defeat uh, China or Russia, as well as compete with them. We haven't defined what competition means. Is it freedom of navigation operations where you send a destroyer or a ship through the Taiwan Straits? big deal. I mean, that doesn't show the Chinese anything. 
And if we're going to deter, what are we deterring China from? Are we deterring China from making economic deals with Asia and with the European Union and Great Britain? Are we deterring China from doing things in Hong Kong or against the Uyghurs? What are we deterring? And defeating uh, Bob Gates, former Secretary of Defense, said any Secretary of Defense who gets engaged in a land war in Asia needs to have his or her head examined. And he's right. So how are we going to defeat China or Russia in nuclear war? My view is that our strategy should be based in alliances based on first, to contain, second, to prevent, third, to defend, and fourth, to engage. And so by containing, if you think of a hierarchy, containing is at the lowest level, we really want to stop the spread. Preventing is to make sure it doesn't happen again. And if it gets out of hand, you've got to defend. But the way that you keep these things in line is to engage. We need to be engaging far more with the Russians on a military to military and a diplomatic level, and certainly with the Chinese. And we're not doing that. And if I think if we do do that, we will find that we have common goals in terms of the environment, in terms of the economy, in terms of a number of issues. Terrorism is among those included. But the problem is we are viewing China as a threat. And I fear that there may be latent racism. Remember in the 1980s where Japan was going to become the number one power in the world and we didn't like it. So I really wonder how much of the threat of China uh, is arising from cultural differences that we do not understand. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not for a strong defense. I am. But I argue for this porcupine defense and a mobile maritime defense, which we can afford. We're spending $740 billion a year on defense. But what does defense that amount of spending do to deal with the three biggest problems from China? One, the pandemic and the lack of candor and clarity in what that, where that bug came from. Two, economically, where China has now running rings, or running rings around us in terms of the uh, regional comprehensive economic partnership in Asia and the free trade deal in Europe. And third, the environment without Chinese uh, cooperation, climate change is not going to work. Tell me what $740 billion worth of defense is, is contributing to that. And I would be very, very impressed. My point here is not whether we should spend 740 or some other number. My point is that we are over-militarizing this environment. And the fact of the matter is, I would argue that these new massive attacks of disruption are and have been more dangerous and are likely to be so. That doesn't mean we drop our guard in these other state and non-state areas. But we have to understand that massive attacks of disruptions, they've already killed 500,000 Americans, more than we lost in both world wars in Vietnam. And so what are we doing? What are we doing to protect against that? And um, I, I don't, well, I think that the Biden administration has done exceedingly well in trying to deal with it. We haven't really begun the battle against not only future pandemics, but the other attacks of massive disruption. And that's why I believe that the infrastructure repair and modernization program is absolutely essential. But will we be able to get there? I don't know. We then talk with Evan Cooper, who is a junior fellow with the New American Engagement Initiative in the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center. Evan talks to us about his idea of reinvesting and restructuring the U.S. Department of State, and he begins by outlining what his idea is. My two ideas are somewhat related. The first is to significantly expand and strengthen the State Department, and the second idea was to bring back the U.S. Information Agency 
for the purpose of countering disinformation globally, but also for the sake of public diplomacy more generally. Uh, I settled on these because there has been an immense weakening of diplomacy in the United States as a component of the power of this country. We have come to rely very heavily on the military for much of what we do and how we engage in the world. And that has come at the cost of the State Department. There was a lot of hope among the foreign policy community and proponents of diplomacy with the Biden administration coming in that that could be corrected for and rebalanced. President Biden made a number of commitments to elevate diplomacy in his um, in his administration, and I am hopeful that there can be an effort with Congress to provide more funding and to greater strengthen the institution of the State Department and the practice of diplomacy itself. Evan then discusses why we specifically need to reinvest in the State Department in order to address many of the major foreign policy challenges facing our country today. It matters for the very reason that there are all of these uh, cascading crises around the world, as well as for the U.S. internally. So to handle something like the coronavirus, you need to be able to work with other countries. And while this is the most extreme example of a truly international problem currently, It's one of many and that requires a similar approach to addressing them. Climate change is another great example. The U.S. does not have the power in and of itself to solve the coronavirus, to fully address COVID-19. Having COVID-19 raging in countries that the U.S. is dependent on for trade uh, or for even our military alliances weakens us internally. And the institution that is responsible for establishing the relationships, for understanding these other countries, is the State Department. If we want to build closer ties with these countries, if we want to be able to assist them to help strengthen them, strengthen our alliances, we need a competent State Department. And what we've seen during the Trump administration, but also prior to that, was a weakening of the institution itself. A lot of senior diplomats have left. Uh, We have not had the number of foreign service officers that we've seen in the past. And these people, these officials, are the ones who will help the U.S. better engage with the world to help figure out solutions to major problems, to help advance U.S. interests around the world. And if the U.S. is really going to take a leadership role in the ways it has in the past, we have to have those relationships established and we have to have smart, reliable people representing the U.S. on a global scale. And they have not been enabled to do that. We have not brought in the right people to do that. And we are seeing the results of that when you look at perceptions of the U.S. around the world. Evan concludes by telling us what his recommendation is for the Biden administration. 
So there are a, a wide range of recommendations, but they, they fall into one general category, which is improving U.S. diplomacy. So one very simple recommendation is to end the practice of appointing political donors as ambassadors. And this has been a practice for decades, uh, actually probably more than a century, uh, practiced by Republican and Democratic administrations. And what it has led to is some very unqualified people helming U.S. missions abroad. All the Biden administration would have to do is say that they won't nominate, if it's a Senate-confirmed position, they will not nominate political donors to the role of ambassadors, and instead will only appoint career foreign service officials who have a deep understanding of how diplomacy works, how to conduct diplomacy, and are not burdened with a lot of the political obligations that donors have. But famously, uh, President Obama had nominated as his ambassador to Norway a individual who had never been to Norway and clearly had no understanding of the country. And it was an embarrassment, not just because they couldn't really do the job they were being asked to, but that it made the other country think that we didn't take the relationship seriously. So that's one easy thing that we could do to really advance diplomacy and show that we're serious about it as a country. I think at a larger level, there needs to be a larger investment in the State Department itself. Uh, the Trump administration routinely proposed massively slashing the budget for the State Department. And while Congress didn't really go along with it, there has been a trend of underinvestment in state. Ultimately, they're going to need more money if they're going to expand their ranks and actually be able to engage more with other countries. Specifically, I would like to see an investment in doing public diplomacy and bringing in the world to the U.S. to communicate the opinions of foreign publics to policymakers in the U.S., the people of the U.S., and then take those viewpoints and communicate them to the world. I think that building stronger relationships with the rest of the world through student exchange programs through informational exchange, will help demystify foreign policy for an American public and demystify U.S. policy for foreign publics. That is more important now than in past times because of the media environment and all the uh, rumors and lies that are spread about what the U.S. people believe or are trying to do abroad and what foreign publics think about the U.S. and how the U.S. is viewed around the world. I think we could develop a better understanding of one another through a greater investment and, and frankly, just an expansion and hiring of uh, diplomats. Marcus Gerlauskas is a non-resident senior fellow with the Skullcroft Center's Asia Security Initiative. He served in the U.S. government for nearly 20 years. He was a national intelligence officer for North Korea on the National Intelligence Council between 2014 and 2020. And in that role, he led the U.S. intelligence community's strategic analysis on North Korean issues, and he expanded analytic outreach to non-government experts. 
He also helped provide direct analytic support to top-level policy deliberations, including the presidential transition, as well as the Singapore and Hanoi summits between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. Marcus tells us about his idea, which is for the U.S. to proactively prevent Pyongyang's provocations. So I chose to write on uh, the near-term challenge for North Korea, which is my assessment that they're considering ballistic missile tests uh, in the coming months, certainly by the end of the year, uh, including the potential for the first launches of several new missiles that had unveiled uh, both in October 2020 and then the most recent uh, in January of this year. And I really think this, uh, this issue is the most important uh, aspect of the North Korea problem right now, because the advancement of North Korea's uh, capabilities uh, through testing of these missiles would increase uh, the credibility of its ability to threaten uh, U.S. forces, U.S. allies, and even U.S. cities, uh, which would undermine regional stability and U.S. national security. And furthermore, if North Korea conducts these tests, it puts the Biden administration in a position of having to react uh, to North Korea uh, and, and could create a dilemma, essentially, if, if, if uh, the international community does not support the Biden administration's reaction, it could really undermine uh, U.S. credibility. But on the other hand, if the response is, is too weak, it could just embolden Kim Jong-un um, to uh, accelerate his, his weapons testing and to be uh, able to push the envelope further on essentially what he can get away with. So I think it's a, it's a real tough challenge that we're going to be facing from North Korea this year that it's important to deal with up front. With North Korea still pursuing its nuclear program and recently unveiling new ballistic missiles, Marcus tells us, why the North Korea issue must be addressed by the Biden administration now amidst other geopolitical circumstances? Well, I think it matters uh, most for, for two reasons. And first and foremost is now uh, we're, we're dealing with China as a uh, geopolitical uh, strategic competitor, right? And I think how we deal with the North Korea challenge is going to be inextricably linked with how we deal with China. Uh, and so... Um, you, you really can't say, hey, we need to focus on, on China because it's more important uh, because it, it's so interconnected, it's really inseparable at this point. That's the, that's the first reason. I think the, the second aspect is uh, North Korea now is the country um, that is uh, the, the closest to, uh, to actually uh, leveraging its nuclear weapons uh, for advantage, and even uh, the country that's potentially the closest to a scenario where it would actually employ uh, nuclear weapons in combat. I mean, I uh, of course take the point that that China and and Russia are great powers that have much more developed uh, nuclear and conventional arsenals, but ultimately uh, these countries I think are much easier to deal with on the strategic scale in terms of deterring uh, and influencing them from uh, taking actions that would, would leverage or employ their nuclear weapons, whereas North Korea's capabilities are, are still ad advancing uh, very rapidly compared to where they were uh, not long ago. Uh, and North Korea's regime seems much more inclined to leverage its weapons for coercive value. And a scenario where North Korea could end up using nuclear weapons, I think, is far more likely um, than any other uh, nuclear power in the world today. Marcus then tells us what his recommendation is to the Biden administration in dealing with North Korea. So overall, I'm not arguing that the Biden administration should give up completely on the idea of denuclearizing North Korea or that it should uh, should not focus on North Korea as a holistic set of challenge that extends 
far beyond just its nuclear and missile capabilities. However, I am arguing that the Biden administration needs to take a proactive approach in the near term to delay, limit, or ideally prevent uh, North Korean missile testing. Uh, and I think that the, the best way to do this is to combine uh, the uh, rebuilding of the international consensus to enforce the UN resolutions that prohibit any ballistic missile launches by North Korea, not just uh, uh, prohibit uh, ICBM launches. They, they cover any ballistic missile launch. And then also to offer some limited incentives to North Korea if it retrain, retain, uh, uh, refrains, I should say, entirely from launches. Uh, and so it's that combination of incentives and potential uh, uh, punishments or risks that you could present to North Korea that I could, I, I do think could affect uh, the regime's calculus. And so uh, I don't think there, that it's very likely that North Korea is going to uh, stop uh, its weapons testing forever. Uh, but I do think it's very important to delay the testing as much as possible and ideally halt it for, for the next few years in order to provide space for diplomacy, uh, in order to, to halt the, the accelerating progress that North Korea has been able to make uh, since 2016 uh, in its programs. And I think uh, it's, a, it's a more realistic approach um, than some of the other ones that, I, that, that you see uh, proposed, including uh, some more extreme approach, uh, approaches like trying to place maximum pressure on North Korea to give it to give get it to give up its nuclear weapons. I just don't think that's realistic, given where China's at, and given how strongly the North Korean regime believes it needs nuclear weapons. I don't think in the near term, uh, maximizing pressure is either possible or is going to achieve the desired effect. Uh, on the on the other end of the spectrum, I don't think a uh, approach that involves uh, essentially what I like to call un unconditional love of North Korea, where you you essentially uh, drop the sanctions and uh, declare uh, peace or negotiate a, a, a peace declaration with North Korea and and just try and reduce the uh, the, the the purported sense of threat that North Korea feels. Um, from the United States. I don't think that's going to achieve the desired result either, because as North Korea continues to develop its capabilities, uh, it, it's not doing so uh, purely because of a reaction to the United States. It's doing so for uh, a variety of strategic reasons. So, so I think we need an approach that lies somewhere between those two extremes that involves uh, trying to slow down the progression of the threat, but then in addition, beyond what I, I put in my, uh, in my entry for the 100 ideas, 100 days, we also need to shore up our own uh, deterrent capability. We need to uh, reinforce the resilience of the uh, uh, South Korea-U.S. alliance uh, in the face of this growing North Korean threat uh, and try and work long term to changing the internal dynamics within North Korea and the nature of the relationship so that denuclearization becomes realistic, even if it's not realistic uh, right now. I think that that's the most pragmatic approach we can take to North Korea. Marcus then discusses whether he believes that the Trump administration's policy towards North Korea, especially with the Hanoi and Singapore summits, was actually successful, and he gives his prognosis on how he believes the Biden administration is going to actually handle North Korea. So I do think um, we, we had a mixed record coming out of the Trump administration in terms of, of dealing with North Korea. But I think the uh, events of 2018 uh, show that uh, if there is sufficient incentives uh, for North Korea to halt testing um, and there's sufficient risk to continuing 
with, with testing. Uh, the North Korea can exercise uh, restraint. I think 2018 and the lack of any ballistic missile tests prove that. But I think uh, North Korea's resumption of ballistic missile testing uh, in the spring of 2019 after Kim Jong-un did not get what he wanted out of the Hanoi summit, uh, I, I think that really shows um, that the fact that this went unchecked, uh, that really shows that North Korea is is still willing to push the envelope to probe and to test uh, to see what it can what it can do in the in the, in the space of missile uh, in in general strategic weapons testing, uh, and the fact that the, the the Trump administration in the end did not strongly confront North Korea, did not mobilize the international community um, to counter this uh, this resumed testing, just led North Korea to be even uh, bolder uh, and more aggressive in forwarding its strategic weapons programs to the point where they tested a new uh, ballistic missile, uh, a, a, a new submarine launched ballistic missile. Uh, and then also uh, continue to, to display the advancements of their programs, including a, a, uh, the largest mobile ICBM they've ever displayed, uh, two larger uh, submarine launch ballistic missiles, uh, and other uh, other capabilities that they, they continue to show advancing. So I think um, that there were some, some high points uh, in terms of the approach of the Trump administration of taking uh, a willingness to sh to take a hard line and also to engage with North Korea, which I think did lead to the to the pause in testing in 2018. But then I think honestly, the Trump administration um, did not uh, react in in the appropriate way to the resumption of ballistic missile tests in in 2019 uh, and in 2020. And that is episode two of the Burnback special collaboration with the Atlantic Council, as we cover the Scowcroft Center's 100 Ideas for the First 100 Days of the Biden Administration. Please check out the other great ideas that have been outlined in this project in the link in our description. And also check out some of the recent Burnback episodes, including an episode featuring Admiral James Stavridis and an upcoming episode featuring Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. Thank you so much. See you soon.